0: The British TV Podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV.
1: Hello and welcome to the British TV Podcast, Show 77. At last! I'm Ryan in Seattle.
0: I'm Chrissy in Seattle.
1: Well, this week's show, we have reviews, news, what's on British TV this week, shows running in the United States, DVD releases, and a feature on Alan Bleasdale. You probably noticed that there was no podcast last week. Well, that's because technical difficulties resulted in us not being able to put one out. What happened is, two hours before we were to begin recording, my computer died, and it would not reboot. Uh,
0: but it's happy and rejuvenated
1: now? It, yes, three days in the shop, and a lot cheaper than I thought it was, and now I have a terabyte drive, so I never need to delete anything ever again. Because <laughs> actually, I have two big fears in the world. One was my hard drive would die. Because I, I read every day on Facebook, some friends says, oh, my, my hard drive failed. Oh, I had to replace my hard drive. And I thought, I've been using the same hard drive for four and a half years. Yeah. So it was it was time. And they were able to recover everything. So great. my other fear is that we actually record a whole podcast and then I go back and I discover that we didn't record anything, and we have to do the whole thing over again. That hasn't happened yet. No, it hasn't. But it will someday, I'm sure of it.
0: <laughs> I'll just be sighing in the background I if know. does. Uh,
1: Impatiently. <clears throat> I've mean, got two backups right now. But, you know, someday I'm going to screw up. We just, it's going to happen. But anyway, we, uh, I don't actually need the computer to record the podcast, but I did need it to edit, encode, and upload the show, not to mention all the notes were stuck in a computer that I couldn't yep. check. So we went ahead and recorded some material anyway, but even if I could have uploaded it, I would have been embarrassed by how bare-bones it was. I'd always been like, oh, show 77, don't listen to that one. So it was just better to wait a week, and I'll include the best stuff here, so waste not, want not. All right. And turns out last week was pretty quiet on the TV front. The only new premiere was really uh, Women in Love, the D.H. Lawrence thing on mm-hmm. BBC4, which I didn't even bother to watch. Ah,
0: uh, nor I.
1: So, I was a good week to uh, be off the air, as it were. Have you heard of For Breitelsen? No, I have not. <clears throat> I hadn't either. Someone tweeted me about it last week. It's a Swedish serialized detective series that has swept Britain. Well, swept might be a bit of a broad description, but it has become a cult show on BBC4, pulling in half a million viewers, that's more than Mad Men gets on that channel, for a show that's in Swedish and shown with English subtitles. Mm. <clears throat> And an American remake begins this weekend on AMC, and it'll be called The Killing, which I think is what For Bridalson means, and it's set in Seattle, our hometown. <laughs> but of course, it's filmed up in Vancouver. Yes,
0: always. <laughs> so they have the puffy Seattle dome. and
1: <laughs> they, they shot a few location shots here, right. but they're trying to say capture the feel of, of Seattle. A review I saw said it was like Twin Peaks without the weirdness. Right,
0: well, that sounds good.
1: But yeah, Guardian readers are going nuts for Bridal Sun, so that's what people are watching in Britain right now. Did you see the Doctor Who teaser trailer?
0: You know, I haven't watched it yet, but...
1: It's got our buddy Stuart Milligan from Jonathan Creek playing Richard Nixon.
0: Well, hey. Well, yeah, it was always interesting with him because I think he was cast just because he looked a little bit like Anthony Stuart Head, who had played the role in the pilot, Mm -hmm. but... He was very good. I liked him throughout the whole thing. It could have been very one-note, but I thought he was an excellent—or continues to be, I guess, since occasionally they do the special, excellent comic
1: foil. He plays Adam Kraus, Jonathan Creek's mm-hmm. employer.
0: Well, that'll be fun then.
1: Yes, and then you well, said as he... a
0: Doctor Who, it's always fun.
1: Well, I think this is a special thing that the character probably won't be in the actual episode. This was filmed just to. Wet people's appetites. And it's got a Stephen Moffat thing, you know, look behind you, look behind you, you need to look behind you right now. And it's this little girl on the phone. So it's nice and creepy, and it's setting up the first episode, which is called The Impossible Astronaut. And that starts in just a month. We're only a month away. Very exciting. The Doctor
0: Who time of year. We love the Doctor Who time of year. And now we get two times of year, plus a day.
1: And a bunch of torchwood in between.
0: Yeah. I watched Burke and Hare cuz it oh yeah it came out on DVD so in the UK so I got a copy of that and watched it. How was it? It was funny. Jessica Hines was the funniest thing in it. I mean it was it was short. It's 90 minutes. Bill Bailey's the narrator. A lot of people a lot of faces we know popping up here and there. But and uh Tim Curry, I always liked that old scenery chewer. He was one of the doctors and they uh, had a shortage of cadavers because crimes had been falling, or actually the punishment scale had been um, cut back so they weren't hanging people as often, so they had a shortage of cadavers. So that's where the, where the two of them sort of uh, saw the need and filled it. But I didn't know, that, and it was true, that actually they just um, required one of them to confess, and the other one got off. And so Simon Pegg, who was playing um, William William Burke, he was playing. He confessed. He he hanged. He was hanged at the end. But uh, Andy Circus and his lovely wife Jessica went on to uh, con another day.
1: Because he didn't confess, he didn't get convicted.
0: Um. Yeah. They they he they allowed one of them to take the fall for the other. So. Oh. Yeah.
1: Huh. Well, I saw Paul over the weekend, and mm-hmm. uh, it was a fun sci-fi thing. It's not probably aimed at quite the wide audience that Hot Fuzz or Shaun of the Dead was. Because Shaun of the Dead, you don't need to know anything about zombie movies. It's
0: a rom-zom-com. Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, even if you don't know anything about zombies at all, and all you have to know about zombies is they want to eat your brains, and if they kill you, you turn into a zombie. I mean, that's the rules of zombiness couldn't be, couldn't be easier. But yeah, it's a romantic comedy. You know, this guy loses his girl and, and he really wants to, what he will go through to get her back. And yeah, it's the apocalypse, but mm-hmm. necessarily not as important as him trying to get this girl back and the you know, adventures that he has. It's, you know, boy meets girl. It's the most accessible thing in the world. And then Hot Fuzz, you know, everybody has seen these overwrought 80s police movies. And the whole joke was the first half of the film was how this was not going to be like that. The Nick Frost character is like, oh, have you ever done this? Have you ever been in a shootout? Dun, 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 dun. Jumping through the air whilst
0: shooting two guns, yes. And Angel was line. like, you
1: know, it's not like that at all. Police work isn't like that. You know, you just have to be a good copper and all this. And then of course ultimately they end up doing all the cliches, right. which they've been, you know, sending up. So Paul is about two British science fiction geeks who all they do is they know the world of sci-fi and they their big dream has been go to Comic-Con and then go to the various UFO sites in on the West and part of America with their RV. And that's a little hard to get to people who maybe aren't into that kind of stuff. Now, I am. I totally relate to these guys. I mean, all the little in-jokes and all the little lines. Because that's me. I have gone to Comic-Con. I rub shoulders with guys like that. Uh, but I don't know if that's going to have quite the wide appeal of it. But, you know, I think he writes what he knows. And doing two guys like that who could do it. Now, can Simon Pegg draw? Because when you see the drawings, is that him or is that somebody that he knows that does those?
0: Um, It's Edgar's brother, probably. Okay. Yeah. I know Edgar's brother did all the storyboards, and he did some of the ex- extras that were animated in Shaun of the Dead. Uh, he didn't do the space drawings, though. I don't know who that was, but it wasn't Simon Pegg. It was someone else. Okay.
1: I didn't know if he was really art drawing, because we kind of see him sketching. and no, then they he just could show play the first. drums.
0: But... <laughs> Because he played the drums in a big train skit, and it really, in fact, it was, um, and then Kevin Eldon played a guitar, and I think Mark Heap was on the bass, and I th- they all really were playing. That was funny.
1: Well, it was a good cast. I uh, had a couple of Veterans of Saturday Night Live, Bill Hader and Kristen mm-hmm. Wig. Uh Jason Bateman was in it. Yeah, it made me laugh.
0: Kind of fun, huh? Yeah. Well, what, have a look at Birkenhair sometime. It's It's fine. It's good.
1: When we talked about last week. I hope it gets released out here. It would mm-hmm. be kind of cool, and, and uh, be ashamed to be this kind of little British movie that nobody sees. Ah, here's a review of the Matt Smith TV movie Christopher and His Kind.
0: I like that very much. Thought it was very good.
1: I thought it was good too. I hope that no Doctor Who fans were watching that because got Matt Smith smoking, drinking, and having lots of gay sex. Mm-hmm. Probably not suitable for the kiddies. But he was very good. I thought he was very believable.
0: Yeah, very charming. I guess he worked really hard getting the voice. I noticed that they also showed a Christopher Isherwood documentary right before it that was filmed in the late 60s. Yeah. And I watched a few minutes of that to kind of catch the voice there. And the little paperweight that they keep showing with the mermaid, that really was the paperweight that he had and was uh-huh. given to him. Yeah, well, okay. they loaned it to them for the, for a prop.
1: Well, it Good certainly show. takes place at a really interesting time in history there, the 1930s, because you have this whole gay subculture going on. But at the same time, you got Nazis everywhere.
0: Yep. Gaining power.
1: Yeah. And it was interesting seeing the attitude of the average German because, you know, their economy was ruined. And they said, we gave the communists a try. They didn't have a strong leader. So we're going to go with Hitler.
0: Yeah. It was interesting, too, that I didn't know that uh, Jean, I guess Ross was her name, who was the yeah. prototype of Sally Bowles, was a communist supporter. And, but she seemed to have a much happier ending than than poor old Sally Bowles, the fictional version of her. Yeah. Just kind of retired back to England and grew up a bit.
1: I thought the title was an interesting play on a lot of things, because you'd think his kind, and mm-hmm. offhand you'd think, you know, homosexuals, because that's the world he sort of lived in. I thought it was interesting, too, that he tended to associate with other British expatriates that were in Berlin, Right. He didn't mind having sex with Germans, but he didn't really hang out with them a lot. They weren't really his friends. His friends were other Brits. And I think the third way was the fact that his kind is his class.
0: Yes, you know? I noticed that as well. Yeah. As
1: an Englishman in, the, in that era, he was very class conscious, and he was a bit of a snob. You'd and
0: rolling in dough, too, because of the exchange rate.
1: Upper middle class mm-hmm. and nice posh mom like uh, Lindsay Duncan there. His friends were all in the same class he was.
0: Yeah, that's true. Would you notice class differences when you're in the UK now? Because I I didn't think I would, and I th- but I do a little bit. And I I've talked to my working class pals, there, the chasm is narrower now, definitely. But they just the The chasm. Used to be, the chasm <laughs> yes, it used to be huge between all the classes. And um, there's a great film that in the UK was called "Keep the Aspidistra Flying." And in the U.S. was retitled A Merry War with Richard E. Grant and Helena Bonham Carter. And that's that's a beautiful... And it was based on a George Orwell story. It's a wonderful, wonderful study of class. Hmm. Because his characters are solidly middle class, but they have very nice jobs and they can kind of count if they continue doing what they're doing on having comfortable lives. But then he knows some people who are upper class and... His character, just because he's a poet, a frustrated poet, and wants to experience gritty life, he for temporarily goes and wallows in the working class, and the differences are just so extreme between the elite with just their packets of money to go. For instance, he, he gets paid a quite a nice sum for a poem, more than he's ever been paid before, and he blows it on one fine meal at the restaurant that his upper-class buddy goes to all the time and yet um, that money would keep him going for half a year when he falls down into the um, into the dregs of the working class where he asks if there's a bathhouse. Where's it set? It's set in the 30s okay. in, in Great Britain, and I'm a sucker for anything in the 30s. and It's really a really fine little piece there. I can loan it to you. I bought the DVD if you want.
1: No, that sounds interesting. Yeah. I read up on Christopher Isherwood, and you know, right after the war, he basically moved to the United States. Mm-hmm. He lived in in Hollywood for yeah. the last thirty or forty years of his life. You know, he died in the eighties. And I have to imagine that that looking back, he could kind of see how the class things were, because you know, Christopher and his Kind was written much later in his life. And I suspect he was. I mean, if they, if I didn't I haven't read the book, but the way that the uh, TV movie comes out, that. You know, there that is a sort of subtle class distinction going on there. That the things that he says and does, and uh, I don't know if that was something that Isherwood himself had put into the book, looking back on it and say, realizing that's the way he sort of behaved then. Because I can't imagine you live in America for forty years and still think that way because right. we are so classless.
0: I read a number of reviews after the show aired, and and a lot of them were saying that they felt. That although Matt Smith was doing a wonderful job, the character itself was just not redeemable because he was so self-involved and so selfish and threw off other people all the time. That, that's it, it came up over and over again in the different reviews. Really, I, I didn't find yeah. him
1: that way at all. It reminded me a lot of the character from Any Human Heart, who's also a writer. I mean, writers tend to be kind of mm-hmm. off-putty kind of people. You know, They internalize a lot of stuff. And six months would happen, and they'd say, oh, here's my new book. We didn't see him writing this book. And suddenly he's becoming well-known and...
0: Well, he wrote a lot in his life. I was amazed looking at the list of his works. Yeah. It just goes on and on. But
1: again, because he wrote the story himself, especially the way he treats Hines at the end there. Right.
0: Well, they felt that just sort of admitting that they were a bit relieved when he got rid of Hines because maybe he was getting tired of him and couldn't get him back, even though he had been trying to get him to emigrate when it finally came to pass, that no, he couldn't and he had to join the army. He was happy about it. And then when Hines offered to bring his wife and son over and become a family for him. He just, oh, no, 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 no. They felt that was just extremely selfish. But well, do you think that... I don't know that I agreed.
1: I thought that he turned on Hines when he found out about the wife and kid. That's where they're meeting after the war. Like He was kind of like, oh, yeah, let's... And then as soon as he said, you know, I'm married, it's like Isherwood just completely... Like oh well I'm you're just beneath me now
0: oh I didn't I didn't see that because I think he knew that Heinz still preferred men when he talks about this is my wife and she doesn't ask many questions I think that was just between them so a little subtext and that oh, I can still you know have my boyfriends on the side if I really want to hmm.
1: okay I, I I thought thought that was the scene where he had already kind of no written him I, th-
0: off. I thought you seemed a little more off put by the sun. Because that's evidence of sex versus the wife, which is evidence of lying low in the regime, you know, where homosexuality is, is no longer tolerated. And, you post and, war? Yeah. And perhaps being lonely, too, you know. But then when he says, this is my son, I th- that sort of really threw Christopher more, more of a loop there. But all in all, I liked it. I, I loved the look of it. I love the 30s. and
1: Then with hats.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and Brill Cream. <laughs> didn't care for the Brill Cream, but there you go.
1: No, it was uh, it was good. I liked it. I, and I, I didn't find his character... To and Douglas it.
0: Booth's silly mustache at the end, too. Because he's only about 18 years old, so... Oh, <laughs> When they yeah, tried to age well. him up and gave him the little mustache that was crawling into his mouth, that
1: was funny. Well, they kind of grayed out Matt Smith's hair a little mm-hmm. bit, and they made him look a little older. But right. At least they didn't try to give him a close-up when he was writing... The, the in the uh framing sequences. We saw hands typing yes. and we heard his voice, but they didn't even try to do him. They didn't David Tennant
0: uh as the two hundred year old dog <laughs> No, they didn't do that to him. Yeah. No. What did you think of Douglas Booth? I liked him a lot. I had he was Hines? You, um, yes. Did you see him in Plain Boy George about a year ago? No. Oh, he was he's very good. He, and he hasn't done a lot at all. I think he just started modeling and They thought he looked like, would make a good boy George, but he was excellent in that. And I thought he did a lot with this character who was pretty, you know, quiet and not a flashy sort of character at all, other than being rather beautiful to look at.
1: I like the girl. I thought Manda Poot, Mm -hmm. is that her name?
0: Um, Imogene Poot. Imogene Poot. Yes.
1: I thought she was really good. Mm Because she had a very nice posh accent and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And, and, you know, the sadness that she had, you know, they had the whole thing with her having the baby. And then, you know, Mr. Wood takes her to have an abortion. And then as you say, she came became a commie afterwards, but you, that almost seems like an affectation. You know, oh, I've gone red.
0: Yeah, it was interesting because I don't know if you're familiar with the differences between Cabaret the Play and the film. They're very, very, very different. Oh, really? So her story really is much more um, common to, if you're familiar with the play than the film. They changed the film around a lot.
1: We should check out A Single Man with Colin Firth because mm-hmm. that's... Another section of Isherwood's life there about a single college professor who's, yeah. who's gay.
0: I sort of wanted to see it anyway. I heard it was good. I've liked Colin Firth since Apartment Zero and Another Country yes. in the 80s. So,
1: And then there's Frankenstein's Wedding. Sometimes I watch shows just to see something different. And Frankenstein's Wedding, which was shown live on BBC3 a few weeks ago and performed in front of thousands at the ruins of Kirkstall Abbey in Leeds, was pretty unique. A modern update of the classic story, in flashbacks that were pre-recorded and inserted into the scenes in the run-up to the wedding, we see Dr. Frankenstein create his creature, reject it, and have his younger brother murdered. Now the creature is living homeless in Leeds, but demands Frankenstein create a companion for him or he will destroy all that he loves. The wedding preparations are a huge affair being put on by Frankenstein's father, played by comedy veteran Mark Williams, best known as Mr. Weasley in the Harry Potter series.
0: In the Fast Show.
1: Yes. I'll get my (laughs) coat. The conceit is he is throwing the wedding of the year and invited the entire city to watch and be a part of it. There are musical numbers, and as the newly married couple are introduced to the crowd, the whole audience participates in a dance number. It's interactive theater, not to mention a good way of keeping people warm on a cold Saturday night in March. A few more rehearsals might have ironed out the glitches, such as cameramen and shots... But as just another element of the spectacle, you can overlook it. I love the sheer audacity of attempting a production that tries to combine so many over-the-top elements. And I always love the excitement of watching live TV. You know, Are they going to dry? <laughs> Will that mic work?
0: Like in the Quatermass. Mass. Experiment. I love that moment when David Tennant was running from one building to the other and went into this incredible slide and pulled out of it at the last second. (laughs) On the commentary track, they were all having great fun with that there because he just nearly face planted, but he saved himself. So, and
1: and they cheated in one scene. The actor was so bad that they actually used the equator mess. Yeah, the bit from the the dress rehearsal. Right.
0: Right. And they also um, said that they all the scenes with the little children in it well, I guess there was maybe just one or two little kids they filmed those ahead of time even though they thought he probably could have done fine because they didn't want to put that on his shoulders that he might mess up the whole show so right that was kind of kind of them as well but it was mostly live and they said that Mark Gatiss was really good at calming people down and just being a rock as the show started they were all freaking internally but he was very a calming presence in that show
1: well, this Frankenstein's wedding was really interesting. It's because it was, I mean, when I read the description, I'm like, I got to see that. that. sounds kind and of like
0: Tony and Tina's wedding that you see popping up in American cities there. Yeah.
1: And the fact that just, you know, it was done in front of thousands mm-hmm. of people. It was done live. The cameras all running around back and forth. And it's the story of Frankenstein, which, you know, has yeah. sort of stood the test of time.
0: And it certainly has.
1: <clears throat> well, this week on Twitter, our Richard Ayoade was the director on last week's episode of the sitcom community on NBC.
0: Oh yeah, I know that cuz he was in a pilot of the IT Crowd with that was Joel ages McHale. Ago, yeah. But Joel McHale said the his only regret over it not being picked up was that people wouldn't get to be introduced to the brilliance and funniness of Richard Iowate. So I think maybe Joel's
1: engineered community that? or is she, yeah, yeah, that's a show. Oh, I didn't I didn't I, I forgot about that connection. That, yeah. yeah, they worked together. So Oh. Richard has a movie submarine which is open mm-hmm. in Britain and will be released soon in the United States. I
0: heard about that. Yep. Well, he's sort of the the Hugh Laurie of his day. He came he was very uh, similar career path. Went to Cambridge, president of the Footlights about 20 years after Hugh Laurie was. So there you go. And he's a handsome, handsome fellow who likes to play, uh, at least at this point in his career, silly, silly characters. Silly nerds. Yeah, even though he's kind of gorgeous once you see him in his headshots there. I read that he's half Nigerian, half Norwegian.
1: Oh, really? And those
0: are some good bone structure that he's gotten out of that mixture.
1: Oh, cool. Well, you definitely follow the career of Richard Iwadi closely. Yep. While my computer was down, I caught up on episodes of Archer, the second funniest animated show on TV... The Venture Brothers is number one. Mm-hmm. And they had a character whose voice was awfully familiar. And I was rocking my brains but I couldn't identify who it was until the credits at the end. And it was Peter Serafinowicz.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, he can do any voice you want. But it's a
1: very classic Peter Serafinowicz mm-hmm. sort of you know, posh voice. Yes. And I just was slapping my forehead when his name came on. I was like,
0: oh, of course it was him. Have you seen his YouTube bit where he's doing, I think it's 50 impressions in two minutes or something like that. But the thing is, none of the impressions are of real people. They're incredible catchphrases that might be old iconic people, but he's making them all up and like more cheese, sir. You know things going on like that and doing all the silly voices and it's quite funny. You should definitely catch that one.
1: Well, Here's another comedian who's slowly making inroads here because he's appearing in some right. American sitcoms, so people are getting to know him. I've collected the reviews that we've done in the last three months and put them in text form and you can now read them so you don't have to hear my annoying voice, read them out. And there's a link in our show notes to that. I like to get that updated every once in a while. In the news this week, my family has finally been axed yeah, by the BBC. I saw that. It was announced last week. No Long one shorter. is crying here. The long-running sitcom starring Robert Lindsay will have its 11th and final season screened later this year. And even better news, the BBC picked up The Indian Doctor for another season. This was the period drama set in Wales starring Sandy Bashkar as an immigrant doctor in a small mining town. And I thought it was quite charming. Logo, MTV Network's channel targeting gays and lesbians, has picked up all five seasons of the fabulously campy British comedy series Absolutely Fabulous. And it will launch a, with a weekend-long marathon on April 16th. So the chance to see Fab again. <laughs> The people putting together House of Cards, which is going to be this remake with Kevin Spacey that David Finch is directing, is going to be made by Netflix. And they committed to two years. They're going to spend $100 million. They committed for 26 episodes over two years. And it will only initially be available to Netflix subscribers. Hmm. It is really interesting, and it's not so much because it's a British TV show, but just that's the whole model of TV is changing this way, where you suddenly have a company that basically was just distributing you know DVDs is now getting into the content creation business. Uh, so that'll be very interesting. I hope they can sustain it for two years. You know, you talked about, it. I don't understand how this is going to work without a parliamentary system, but uh, it's certainly very interesting. And then Julian Fellows, who is working on Downton Abbey, is going to do a Titanic miniseries. And it's one of these big co-productions. ABC is going to be doing it, ITV, Irish TVs, all this sort of stuff. I mean, I don't know if we really need another version of Titanic. I don't know if you saw the Leonardo DiCaprio version I or I didn't, not. know. It was nice because it did actually highlight the class differences, that there was first class and there was steerage. Yeah, and there talking was a, about
0: earlier, they're, they're really different. Yeah,
1: and Julian Fellows is good at writing that stuff. I mean, that's what he does. Uh, Gosford Park and, of course, Dun Abbey. But Titanic, you know, it's been done. But they're going to do it. Uh, Michael Goff died. He best known probably playing Alfred in three oh, yeah. of the Batman movies and a TV veteran, you know, Champions, The Avengers... Doctor Who, Smiley's People, Brightside revisited. Uh, he was still working with Tim Burton. He was in Alice in Wonderland last year, and he was either ninety-three or ninety-four. They weren't sure hmm. when he was born because he was born in Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, he's a great actor, and he uh, had a big presence on TV and movies for many years. So he'll be missed. What's on TV for the week of March 29th to April fifth? Tuesday, BBC Four presents a documentary, Sex and the Sitcom, examining how society's attitudes towards sex and sexuality since the 1950s have been reflected in comedies.
0: Oh. Well, there goes a podcast topic. They beat us to
1: it. We (laughs) could steal from it because no one will see it. All right.
0: (laughs) Silk has its season finale on BBC One.
1: I'm really enjoying Silk. They're they're trying to redeem Rupert Penry Jones' character a little bit, but he still does underhanded things. But I'm curious to see how the, how the show ends. I, I hope they bring that back for another series. And White Van Man continues on BBC Three.
0: Wednesday, Waterloo Road continues on BBC One.
1: Midsummer Murders continues its 14th season on ITV One with Neil Dungeon now taking over for John Nettles as a detective in a small village full of white people.
0: Thursday, Monroe continues on ITV
1: One. I'm just slogging through. Just, I know. <laughs> just to say that I've seen them all, but no surprises so far. And the two-part adaptation of D.H. Lawrence's Women in Love concludes on BBC4.
0: 10 O'Clock Live is on Channel 4.
1: Celebrity Juice is on ITV2.
0: Russell Howard's Good News returns for a fourth season on BBC3.
1: And on Friday, Benidorm continues on ITV1.
0: Friday Night Dinner is on Channel 4.
1: The second season of Frank Skinner's Opinionated continues on BBC Two.
0: On Saturday, your best bets are a repeat of Dad's Army and a French detective series called Spiral.
1: Slim Pickens, until Doctor Who comes back. Yep. Sunday, Time Team continues on Channel 4.
0: A new season of Lewis with Kevin Waitley as the Oxford detective begins on ITV One.
1: Waking the Dead is on BBC One.
0: Monday, The Dales continues on ITV1, a documentary series about Yorkshire presented by one of its native sons, Adrian Edmondson.
1: Law and Order UK continues on ITV1.
0: Waking the Dead has the conclusion to its story on BBC1.
1: 2012 continues on BBC4 about the Olympic Committee and Darren Boyd guest stars in this episode.
0: Tuesday, it's the debut of Candy Cabs on BBC One, a comedy drama following the fortunes of two women struggling to run an all-female taxi firm after the death of their ambitious business partner.
1: Wasn't there a carry-on movie like this? (laughs) Could well be. Channel 4 begins Campus, a new comedy set at a college campus.
0: White Van Man continues on BBC Three.
1: In the United States on BBC America, Wednesdays there's reruns of The Tudors.
0: Friday, it's Law and Order UK.
1: Saturday on the penultimate episode of Being Human, the werewolves are back, but so are the police.
0: It's followed, oh I haven't seen that yet, I'm I'm down to two left, but it's followed by The Graham Norton Show.
1: I'm really hoping that they run Becoming Human. I really liked it a lot. Mm. Uh, BBC America would be very smart if you're listening uh, to pick that up and show it as well. And Monday on BBC America, there's repeats of Top Gear.
0: The third season of Merlin continues Friday on Sci-Fi.
1: DVD releases. Some of these are from last week. The first is The Ambassador, the complete series. Pauline Collins stars as the British ambassador to Ireland, who, along with her pet intelligence spooks, played by Dennis Lawson, manages to escape diplomatic traps set each week in this BBC drama series from 1998. It was okay.
0: Yep, yeah. that was the position held by Momulim wasn't it? She was the ambassador to Ireland.
1: And I couldn't tell you.
0: Oh, well, she—I she, <clears throat> was a favorite of mine. I was very, very sad when she died. So she had an interesting life, though. Look her up on Wikipedia. I mean, teaching college in Florida and being stalked by Ted Bundy at one point. I mean, just the amazing things that happened to her over the course of her life. She packed a lot in.
1: Did you point out that's not how she died?
0: No. No, I think she let him know that he was. she had noticed, so he got scared away. Flambards, the complete series, the 1979 ITV drama series set in the early 1900s, will be out on DVD. If you saw Rob Brydon's director's commentary series from 2004, one of the shows he did a spurious commentary track on was Flambards.
1: He also did uh, Bonanza, Duchess of Duke Street, and some forgotten medical sitcom with Richard Wilson. (laughs) Barclay Square, the complete series. A BBC costume drama from 1998 about three young women from very different backgrounds meet, become friends, and share experiences when they all gain positions as nannies in the wealthy households of London's exclusive Barclay Square.
0: Piece of cake. The complete miniseries, this nineteen eighty-eight wartime drama from ITV, was shown on Masterpiece Theatre and then famously sent up by a Spitting Image as piece of fake.
1: They used Hurricanes instead of Spitfires, and oh. they were borrowing footage from the Battle of Britain. Ah, uh, people take their war movies very mm-hmm. seriously. Upstairs, downstairs, the complete series fortieth anniversary edition is the classic 1970s ITV series, whose revival begins next week on PBS.
0: Time for a feature. This is going to be mostly Ryan, but I'll pipe in a few things too. Mr. Alan Bleasdale.
1: Alan Bleasdale is a writer who has created many landmark television dramas on British TV. He got a start in the early 1970s in radio with a series of dramas about the adventures of Scully, a young man from Liverpool, his hometown, was a more modern approach to city life in the North than what was normally produced.
0: So I read about that. Was he playing Scully or just... No, no, no. no. He just wrote them. Okay. Yeah, he's not an actor.
1: In 1978, he wrote a TV movie called The Black Stuff about a gang of men on a paving job that goes awry when they begin moonlighting. It took two years before being broadcast, but when it finally went out, it made a big impact. This led to a series called Boys from the Black Stuff in 1982, starring Bernard Hill as Yasser Hughes, whose catchphrase, gives a job, came to represent unemployment in the Thatcher years. In this scene, Yasser goes to confession and breaks down. Yes. I'm... 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 I'm not a youth. There's no need to tell me. I'm, I'm desperate, Father. Oh, well, it... Uh can be a desperate world at times, Mr Hughes. Yes, Hughes. Well, it can be a desperate world at times, Yossi Hughes. <coughs> Tell me, would it make it any easier if, um... <sighs> <sighs> oh, a trouble shared in a place of peace, my son. <coughs> a haven. I'm Father
0: Thomas.
1: (coughs) Doubting, for short. Doubting, Thomas. Daniel Thomas. I'm here to help you, Yossi Hughes. Daniel, don't worry about the father. I'm desperate father. Call me Dan. I'm desperate, Dan. He ends there, banging his head on the wall of the confessional. Bernard Hill would go on to do blockbuster movies like Titanic and The Lord of the Rings, and it also featured an early dramatic appearance by someone who would become a regular in Alan Blaisdell Productions: Julie Walters. In 1986, he wrote the World War I drama series The Monocled Mutineer, which starred Paul McGann, who we talked about in show 71. Distribution, Johnny. Ballage firms, bus services, taxi companies, all crying out for
0: cut-price petrol. This little racket isn't little anymore. It needs someone like you to add your uh, considerable charm and organization to the proceedings. What do I get out of it? Same as me. Straight down the middle with everything you handle. Uh, once we've made our donations and deductions to unworthy causes, such as Harry here.
1: Yeah. Forgive my suspicions. I'm not used to such generosity. Ah, Call it for old time's sake as well. You do remember me there, don't you? Totally, Tony. Totally. Not well, to be honest with you, the first minute I saw you. Now it's me, you see. Don't like to be recognised. Sure, sure. In 1985, Alan Bleasdale wrote a musical about Elvis Presley called Are You Lonesome Tonight? And Paul Darrow from Blake Seven played the older Elvis in a 1988 production. I remember that because he was a guest at Anglican in Seattle that year and he had (laughs) black dyed hair and sideburns. It was in 1991 that Alan Bleasdale would write his television masterpiece, GBH. This seven-part miniseries for Channel 4 focused on Michael Murray as the militant labor leader of a city council in the north of England in an extraordinary performance by Robert Lindsay. Murray calls for a general strike in the city, but is defied by a school headmaster played by Michael Palin. You might remember we talked about GBH in show 21 on our feature on Robert Lindsay. I cannot recommend GBH highly enough. If you are listening to this podcast, I have to assume you have some interest in British drama and you simply must watch GBH once in your life. Do it now. Okay. Wait until this podcast is over and then go and find it. It's available on DVD everywhere and on Amazon Instant Watch. You won't regret it. You've seen it, right? Yeah. Oh.
0: Bye. (laughs) You can make little footstep sounds.
1: Kathunk. thunk thunk Yeah. Four years later, the GBH team of writer Alan Bleasdale and star Robert Lindsay were reunited in Jake's Progress, a five-part miniseries about a dysfunctional family. Would Lindsay be in any other kind? Only one real rule in life, Jake. Never get caught. Right? Never get caught. Well, if you've never done anything wrong, you'll never get caught. you have never done anything wrong. There again. It's sometimes more fun never to get caught. Okay.
0: I never got caught.
1: Ah, oh, but you confessed, and that's just as bad. Worse, even. Hey, you've got another confession coming up there, son?
0: No.
1: Come on, you can tell me. Ah. Uh mother so do i she's not a woman now she lives in napoli look tomorrow jake tomorrow you and i have a lot of fun okay boy will we have a lot of fun
0: tomorrow never comes that's what you always say
1: Julie Walters played his wife while their son Jake seems to have watched The Shining a few too many times. Though the supernatural is only hinted at, Lindsay does have his fortune told in the first episode. He'll die shortly after having an affair. Soon afterwards, a pretty young immigrant arrives in his life. The trouble with this series was it moved at a dead slow pace, telling us everything there is to know about every character, even if we weren't interested at 90 minutes per episode 2, it was a bit of a long haul just to make it through each part. Jake's progress just didn't capture my interest as the earlier bleasdale Lindsay efforts had done. In 1994, Alan Bleasdale produced, but didn't write, four TV movie dramas under the umbrella title of Alan Bleasdale Presents. The first was Self-Catering. This Channel 4 allegorical movie was about five survivors on a desert island after a plane crash. Jane Horrocks' Andrew Schofield and John Gordon Sinclair starred. The two men and three women adopt new names based on movie stars and then begin to act the parts. Gordon Sinclair goes around calling himself Henry, think he's Henry Fonda.
0: Henry, I know about the birds and the birds, but what about the bees and the bees? What are you talking about? What can men like men? Yes.
1: What do you like?
0: I like football. I would have been a footballer, but it was no good.
1: What's that got to do with it?
0: Well, I don't call myself a footballer because I don't play, so how can I call myself a heterosexual or whatever? I might as well call myself an astronaut. Because that's also something I'd like to do if I got the chance. You bored? I think we're all in the company of people who, in other circumstances, we'd arrange
1: our lives to avoid. That doesn't mean that every possible sexual combination isn't first attempted by the group, which culminates in a bizarre, serial-comic non-ending that the British seem to adore in these sorts of films. Looked at it one way, self-catering is the deconstructionist version of Gilligan's Island. The second was Requiem Apache, filled with oddball characters in a drama about Alfred Molina as a former getaway car driver trying to escape his old ties. He's gotten married and cares for his infant daughter while living in a pastoral country village. But the old gang want him to do just one more job. The others were Blood on the Dole and Pleasure. Pleasure was set in France and starred Adrian Dunbar as a no-talent writer who places a personal ad and attracts the attention of a bored married housewife. He tells her he's in a mystery bandit that has been striking Paris, and she becomes even more excited. Together they make a big score, but then he dumps her. She is thrown out by her husband, turns to prostitution, and then gets her own former revenge on the writer. And you were mentioning a movie that I wrote. saw.
0: Yeah, I saw a film, and it was the, the absolute banner year, I think it was 86, when there were so many good British films that a number of films that in other years would just have gone to the Seattle International Film Fest, there wasn't room for them, because that's the year there was My Beautiful Laundrette and Mona Lisa. So, after the film festival, they had a series where they showed, I think, one or two, I think it was just one film, but for a week, and they did four in a row, and they called it the best of the rest at the crest, and they were all British films, and they played at this little theater that's not too far from where Ryan and I live in Seattle, that today is a second-run theater, but back then wasn't, and it's but it's part of the Seven Gables chain. And I saw them all. And the one that really stuck with me the most was, I now know, it was Alan Bleasdale, which was called No Surrender, about Pakistani gentleman who is about to embark on working his first night managing a nightclub, finds the former managers being beaten to death by gangsters in the back. But as this former manager who knew he was going to be killed for his whatever he did wrong in the eyes of the mob that this fellow is now finding out owns the nightclub, booked the worst acts he possibly could. And to, um, compl- and he double booked the building Um, of some, this is in Ireland, it's at, uh, Protestants and Catholics, OAPs. So it's just the worst night possible. And Joanne Wally was in it. She played the waitress who flirts with this new gentleman who's managing the club, and Elvis Costello played the worst magician in the world, who was just wandering around at Sad Sack in his magician outfit, and he had his rabbit, and then his rabbit died, so he was just carrying this rabbit carcass around with him, and it was just very, very black comedy, and I enjoyed it. And one of the other films, actually, was, I've told you about, was Steaming, directed by Joseph Losey, based on a stage play, and that was just kind of fun in that I really liked it. It's an all-woman cast, Vanessa Redgrave was in it. But years later, I was being picked up from the train station by a gal who was watching over a and b where I was going to stay in London, and she turned out to be one of the stars of the movie. And I recognized her, and she'd never been recognized by an American before. And I said, what is your name, Patty? And, and what's your last name? Is it Love? And or something, or maybe she told me, and I said, "Oh, well, I thought I recognized you. She said, no, no, you, you wouldn't have ever seen anything I did. And I said, well, didn't you star in a movie called Steaming? And she almost fell on the ground. And then she made me do the whole recognizing thing a second time because it was so much fun for her. So I had to start the whole conversation over again. And then she loved me and went out and bought me croissants for breakfast. So,
1: Well, as the uh, Peter Serafinowicz experience shows, I am terrible at recognizing people, remembering names or anything like that. I the most famous person in the world could walk right in front of me and be like, huh? So, you're very good at that. In 1997, Alan Bleasdale adapted Melissa into a complex Channel 4 mystery about a group of close friends who are slowly being killed off one by one. Caught in the middle of this is Tim Dutton as a man who meets the enigmatic Melissa on a cruise, marries her on a whim, and then is accused of her murder a short while later. Melissa had a lot of secrets, but then so do all her friends. This wouldn't be the only time that Bleasdale took a novel and fleshed it out. The first two episodes of Melissa were entirely embellished by him with the blessing of the author. Melissa was already dead when the book began. And this added a satisfying backstory to the events as they unfolded. So in 1999, Alan Bleasdale adapted one of Chrissy's favorite Mark Warren appearances, Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist. In addition to Warren, the all-star cast included Michael Kitchen, Julie Walters, Lindsay Duncan, Kieran Knightley, Robert Lindsay, and Andy Circus. The adaptation was well-received, but attracted some controversy as Bleasdale expanded the narrative by adding a backstory. And you've mentioned this more than once on the cast here about
0: yep. characters who had one
1: line in the book get this whole big story about yep. them. Yeah, the
0: little, the little boy's not even born until the second episode. You see the mother um, meeting the man who's already married to Lindsay Duncan and already has a grown child he doesn't like, but the hair, him impregnating her anyway, and... But he says he's going to be with her, so she's happy. And, and you see all of that leading to her having um, giving birth in a poor house and then dying of a broken heart immediately afterward, which is an Oliver Twist. But it leads, and, and then it, it just fleshes everybody out. In fact, Mark Warren, knowing he was playing what's a very small role in the book that doesn't really show up much until the end, thought he was just going to do a little role, and then he realized he had, well, it's a very ensemble piece, but he essentially had one of the leads and uh, was delighted. And there's um, a PBS still maintains the website for it. It was a really popular show for them. And they did a little behind the scenes pictorial of him getting made into the character of Monks, who's just appalling looking with a black wig and his eye and scars and his pail and the circles. And then he sort of dressed and looked exactly like that 10 years on playing Dracula. I think we. My mom said he's wearing the same wig, isn't it? You When she looked at it, and I think he might have been, so. And also, ten years, he he menaced uh, Sophia Miles in both productions too, because oh. <laughs> he was sent in to kill her by his mother, but he couldn't quite do it. Plus, he had a seizure on top of her because his character was epileptic, and then in Dracula, of course, he was vaunted to suck her blood as well, so. That's, that's sort of a career thing he seems to be returning to every few years. Is,
1: Attacking Sophia Miles. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about taking a classic like that? I mean, is it uh, heresy or helpful to start at clomping your own things on there? I mean, do people want to see Hamlet where we get the whole, you know, run up to the story there? Or?
0: Well, Tom Stoppard wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are did. That's true. And which embellished the couple characters with only a few lines. You know what it reminded me of? In the last time I was in Paris, I was by myself and I spent a whole day at the Louvre and there were a lot of people. It was off season, it was winter. There were a lot of people who were painting um masterpieces, but there was one fellow who had essentially set up kind of a folding screen and the middle panels of it he had absolutely duplicated an original artwork on the wall of a room, but the other two panels that folded off, he had um, extended them with his imagination in the style of the original painting. So, I always kind of think of that when I think of what he did, and with Oliver Twist. But it's it's quite a commitment. It's a, um the I have the British DVD which has about an extra hour, but it's it's about eight hours long if you buy, and seven hours if you get the American DVD. They cut. Some stuff for just for time, I think. So it's a time commitment, but I think it's worth it. And Beautiful cast. Isla Fisher's in it, too, way before she was in um, Wedding Crashers and Shopaholic. And uh, she was just in Birkenhair with Simon Pegg. So she has a small part as well.
1: Yeah, I would say it was an all-star cast. In 2004, Bleasdale began researching his next television project, although it would not make it to the screens for another seven years. This was the sinking of the Laconia, based on the true story about an ocean liner sunk by a German U boat during World War II, who then rescued the passengers. What rank of officer would you be, sir?
0: How did you know? I think it was demeanor rather than dread. Marlon? In answer to your question, not very high-ranking.
1: Well now you do disappoint us. Junior Third Officer, Merchant Navy, Thomas Mortimer.
0: There's hot coffee and soup, Mortimer, and a change of clothing. But low rank, as you claim to be, does seem that you're the only officer on board from the Laconia. And consequently, I'm afraid that you should consider yourself a prisoner of war and have some questions. Regarding? they light like treatment of the Italians under your command and care.
1: My command, my care.
0: They're witnesses.
1: Oh, for Christ's sake, bring all the witnesses you can find. You know, the only person I wanted to hit on board the Laconia was a f***ing Englishman. So go on. Bring you your mayor, bring me a witness. I reviewed this two-part BBC Two drama back in show 67. It's a shame that it was 11 years between TV projects, although at least the wait was worth it. I thought the singing of the Laconia was an excellent, compelling drama that avoided disaster movie cliches as well as making all the characters three-dimensional and believable. All this output is pretty good for a lad from Liverpool. I think Alan Bleasdale is in the first rank of British TV writers, including Dennis Potter and Stephen Poliakoff. Let's hope he's working on something else. Next week, I thought we'd look at Robson Green. Before playing a werewolf on this season's Being Human... Robson was a lead actor in many British dramas, as well as a one-time pop star. <laughs> so Robson and Jerome, remember them? <sighs> Didn't make it really big over here. He's been in a lot of, lot of shows. A lot of, He was a big ITV star for a while. So let's uh, talk about him as Being Human wraps up its season. Sounds good. Meanwhile, we'd like you to visit our website, www.britishtvpodcast.com, and there you can find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week, and an archive of our previous 76 shows. You can follow us on Twitter at BritTVPodcast. And if you have a comment or suggestion, please send it to us. We'd love to hear from you. And that's at feedback at britishtvpodcast.com. Sounds good. Let's see what's coming up this week that looks interesting.
0: Yep. well, I'm sure I'll finish Being Human and uh, Comic Relief. I watched a big, a bunch of that. So far, my favorite thing was the video done by Peter Kay and Susan Boyle. Yes. Because I was very familiar with the original with Barbara Dixon and Elaine Page, which they almost shot for shot remade. But
1: Ah, so it has a double meaning for you. Mm -hmm. To me, it was just, oh, there's Peter Kay and Drake doing a duet with Susan Boyle.
0: Well, did you see Peter Kay as Geraldine about four or five years ago? He had, he was, it was, the character was from a takeoff on all the pop idol X Factor type shows. Oh, that was a great, great show. Well, it was very, very funny, and he got the real Cat Deeley and the real people who had been judging the shows to oh, play yeah. themselves, and it was hysterically funny. So that he was just reprising Geraldine, although he sang quite well as a lady. I thought it was he had a good he voice. He
1: takes his parodies very seriously. Mm-hmm. Because again, it was meticulously done. You never saw anybody. Cracking a joke or doing anything funny—it just—it was just the absurdity of the whole thing and these people mm-hmm. and how they just—you know—their lives are made in this big soap opera and the crying and the breakdown and the revelations and and to making them into real characters and the whole country's rooting for them. He captured that also perfectly. My
0: mother was only sort of paying attention. And she said, well, that was just horrible that they went in and interrupted that lady's funeral to tell him that the the kid that he was back on the show. (laughs) And I'm like, Mom, they didn't really do that. It's a parody. It's okay. I did tell her that earlier, but she hadn't caught that somehow. She just noticed that they were just being, you know, they were interrupting a funeral just to put the kid back on the show because he now had a tragedy under his belt. So he would make good camera fodder, I guess.
1: I think about the only thing people would have seen Peter Kay in this country is playing the absorbal off on Doctor Who.
0: Yeah, could be. And big, big star over there.
1: Oh, yeah. The
0: only controversy I've ever known him to have was that he released an awful lot of DVDs that had the same jokes on them.
1: No one forces you to buy DVDs. Right. That's what reviews are for. Well, thanks for listening. Sorry it took a week to get it out here. That's why we came out a day early this uh, week and then we're back on our usual Wednesday release schedule with Show 78. So we'll see you in April. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.